Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I wanted to personally invite our listeners to an event that we're partnering with, Jersey City Tech Meetup. It's called How Solar Technology is Changing the World. It is on Tuesday, July 30th, 2019 at 6.30 p.m., and it's free to attend in Jersey City, New Jersey. It's a great panel of speakers in different parts of the solar industry. I will be moderating the panel, and all the speakers have actually been on the Solar Maverick podcast. Our first speaker is Suzanne Waters, who works at Renew Energy, and she has co-hosted several episodes with me. Also, Steve Schward from Schward Consulting, Chris Grablitz from PV Pros, and Juan Triol from Strata Solar. It's going to be a great event, and I hope you can attend. If you're interested in getting more information on the event, you could find it on the notes of our podcast. You could also go to meetup.com and look for Jersey City Tech Meetup, or you could find it on the Renew Energy website, which is reneuenergy.com. I hope to see you there. Thanks system owners can recover their costs up front instead of over a 20 to 25 year period, which is pretty much the life of the system. So that's something that definitely makes the projects more attractive. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. And I'm your co-host, Suzanne Waters. So let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm your host, Benoit Banjan. We have an exciting episode today, Why Landowners Should Look at Solar. And I have my co-host, Suzanne. Hello, Suzanne. Great hey, to be on the podcast. Hey, Benoit. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for being on the podcast. Can you tell everyone a little bit about you? And you've co-hosted a couple of podcasts as well as what you do for Renew Energy. Sure. So I'm happy to be back on one of my many podcasts now with the Solar Maverick. Um, You're an expert. I know. If you, I could call myself that. If you want to refer back to some of my older episodes, I do with Benoit the New Jersey Market 101, the New York Market 101, the Estrec 101, my solar story, just to name a few. Also, in addition to co-hosting the podcast with Benoit here at Renew Energy, I do our proposal writing. I do some contract analysis a lot of our SREC management site project feasibility reports and just really any other things that fall under business development. And also I'm excited, our upcoming event, I'm going to be speaking on a panel in Jersey City, how solar tech is changing the world. That's going to be on Tuesday, July 30th at 6.30 in downtown Jersey City. Benoit is actually going to be moderating that. We're going to, I guess, be announcing our location and our other guest speakers in the next couple of weeks. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, definitely. It'll be an amazing event. And then also, too, you did a podcast episode where both Suzanne and I interviewed a former colleague of I, Juan Triol from Stratus. Oh, how, did, how could I forget to mention that one? Yes. We talked about estimating. And just to give the audience members a brief background of Renew Energy, we're a solar developer and consulting firm. We develop utility scale and commercial industrial solar projects, predominantly in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. We also have looked at projects in California, and we also source financing for projects. We help with SREC brokerage. We've brokered about 28 million SRECs. We also manage about 12 megawatts where we do SREC management, and we also provide other consulting services. Suzanne really as well does the asterisk management piece and she does a great job with that. So yes. Oh, anytime. And yeah, so. Is that my cue to say, let's get into it. (laughs) 
Yes, let's get All right, let's get into it. Great. So I was just waiting for the cue from Suzanne. (laughs) Why a landowner should look into going solar is because you could get income for that land that maybe you weren't getting in the past, or you could be getting more revenue from doing that than maybe other things on that land. And that's through some sort of utility scale project or community solar project, which is basically a utility scale project. But then the offtake, instead of selling it into the utility, you're basically selling it to a lot of different offtakers, which is a combination of residential and commercial industrial. Uh, But the main thing why you potentially as a landowner should look into a utility scale project or potentially even selling land as a potential solar project. But in this scenario, we're focusing more on leasing the land. You maintain ownership of your land You earn passive long-term income. You also enjoy reduced tax liability, and you also don't have to worry about operations and maintenance. You also bring sustainable energy to your community. And I mentioned about there is the opportunity as well, if it's an ideal site for solar, to as well sell the land. Suzanne, can you go into the other things that maybe landowners should know about going solar? Yeah, I guess just briefly kind of describe what would make the option of this something that like a solar owner would want to actually invest in on your land. So there's incentives, federal incentives for the solar system owner, the investment tax credit right now through the end of 2019, that's a 30% tax credit for the cost of the system. In 2020, they're decreasing that credit to 26%. 2021, it's decreasing to 22%. And then as of 2022, it's scheduled to stay at 10% indefinitely. There's actually right now, though, Benoit and I were just talking legislation in the works to extend the 30% tax credit. So hopefully that goes through. But as we're talking about these decreases over the next couple of years, there's what's called safe harboring, where you can safe harbor your project by the end of the year to qualify for that year's incentive. You have to purchase at least 5% of the project's cost and supplies. So we're actually seeing that as a big trend as the years come to the end. What we're seeing is actually the easiest thing is to basically buy solar panels to represent that 5%. So what we're finding is that developers and construction companies are having a hard time finding panels or using panels that they weren't planning to use. And then they actually have to re-engineer the project because you're using different modules and they're different sizes. They could be different sort of power outputs as well. So it's been an interesting time to find panels and, you know, people have been warehousing. So kind of your bigger companies are having these panels warehoused all over the U.S. and other locations, which makes it interesting. Suzanne mentioned about the drop down of the incentive then to a permanent 10% incentive that only applies to commercial and utility scale solar projects, residential it goes to zero after the last sort of drop-off period. And basically an organization called SIA, which is a national solar lobbying group, is trying to get an extension of the investment tax credit. We're actually a member of SIA and, and has submitted the letter with our signature for our company to go to Congress to basically continue to push for the 30% investment tax credit, which has been ideal for solar energy. Yeah, So I'll go ahead, Roy. (laughs) No, uh, which part did you want to talk about? No, I was just going to go into the next federal incentive, makers. But if you had something else you wanted to No, you can go into makers, definitely. I think that's a good transition, like where we basically first focused on the investment tax credit, the importance of the investment tax credit, the drop down of the incentive, 
And then the solar industry is really trying to keep that 30%. But another important incentive is the one that Suzanne's going to talk about now. Yeah, another federal incentive, MAKERS, it's actually an acronym for Modified Accelerated Cost Recovery System, which is a five-year accelerated depreciation. So basically, the system owners can recover their costs up front instead of over a 20 to 25-year period, which is pretty much the life of the system. So that's something that definitely makes the projects more attractive to system owners. And then in addition to the federal incentives, you have different state-level incentives. The fact that the cost of panels have decreased, the efficiency of the panels are going up. So it just makes that whole situation open win. Yeah, definitely. So that means like the economics are getting a lot better. States that there weren't opportunities for solar are now seeing solar. And obviously, the stronger the state-level incentives, the better it is. And as well, another important piece is the federal incentives basically make up 50 to 60% of the cost of the project. That doesn't include the state level incentives. So if you have strong straight level incentives, it really helps as far as the economics. The reason why we're kind of talking about this, because even though the landowner is not getting these incentives, their lease payment per acre is being impacted by the economics of the project. So that's why we're walking through that. Right. So you can expect in states that have higher incentives or better incentives, the landowners are going to benefit from that. So much more, yes. Yeah. Okay, I guess next we can get into like the infrastructure that goes into these solar farms. So for landowners, the systems are typically ground-mounted systems. There's typically two types that we see. So you have a fixed system, which the panels are mounted to a metal frame that are driven into the ground to hold the panels at a fixed angle. Then there's also tracking systems, which are growing in popularity. The panels are actually mounted to a structure that moves throughout the day, pretty much following the sun, so that the panels are constantly facing the sun, which actually maximizes the energy production, if you can kind of visually imagine that. (laughs) The panels are literally moving throughout the day so that they're always tracking the sun in the sky throughout the day, hence the tracking system. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And if you go to YouTube, you could easily find videos on the tracking ground-mounted system that Suzanne's talking about. And then the first one is, it's called fixed tilt ground-mounted system, where it's basically at a fixed angle. And yeah, that's a great explanation. Thanks, (laughs) Benoit. I guess we can go into next, like landowners, how they'd qualify their land to see if they would actually have a good piece of property for a solar project. Yeah, that would be great. So basically, once a landowner reaches out to a solar company, preferably Renew Energy, (laughs) for a look at the project, you would have the solar developer look at these things for you. But what Suzanne's going to really provide is like the high level things that the landowner could do to see whether it's a viable location for solar. Yeah, okay. So I guess at the top of the list, understandably, would be how much acreage do you have? So one megawatt of solar typically requires about six to eight acres of land. So the typical solar farm, which is actually just getting bigger and bigger as the years go, is around five to 20 megawatts. So you're talking anywhere between 30 to 150 acres. So a significant amount of land. Other land qualifiers would be that your land is relatively flat. You want to have limited to no shading obstruction, so you're getting the most sunlight as possible. That also being said, you want an area that receives a high level of sun each year. So geographically, you want to be in a spot that's ideal for sunlight. And then limited wetlands, which I feel like is important because when you have land, so much land that's that flat, your exposure to wetlands obviously is great. So just briefly defining wetlands, it's 
basically all areas considered to be wetlands have enough water at some time during the year to stress plants and animals that don't adapt to life in water or saturated soils. So basically vegetation or any other type of growth in a wetland area are things that are meant to live in water. So you want to have limited wetlands on the land that you're looking at to qualify for your solar project. And then also with that being said, you don't want it, no endangered species habitat. And something that Benoit is going to give a little more detail on, you want to make sure you have accessibility to transmission infrastructure. Yeah, definitely. So that that is actually one of the biggest things when developers look at solar projects. It has to be close to existing transmission infrastructure. So it has to be nearby high voltage transmission line or substations to be able for the solar project to interconnect to the grid. So this could be a huge cost that could actually ruin the potential of the solo farm. So the best locations are near existing infrastructure. I could tell you like I've seen interconnection costs from 400 to 500,000 to four and a half million dollars. And the one that was like four and a half million dollars was like miles or two miles or three miles, I think, from the transmission point. So that's a really big part of the equation because that really dictates the economics of the project. And also depends too how much other projects are actually already interconnected into that interconnection point or how many other projects are in that interconnection point because then they would potentially, the utility would have to upgrade the interconnection point and the transmission distribution lines, which could make it prohibitive as well. So that's a definitely very important aspect when you look at developing solar projects. And that's kind of like the, one of the first things that people look at. The other thing too, it takes a very long time to develop these solar farms. So it takes between two to five years to develop. And there's a lot of significant tasks and risks related to developing the projects when it comes to permitting, financing, constructions. Usually what a developer will ask for is some sort of letter of intent and do some basic sort of due diligence of the project to see if it's a viable opportunity. And then they'll typically ask for a short-term lease during the development phase, then followed by a long-term lease once the project is being built. But there are all these things that are happening in the background that the landowner is not necessarily aware of, which I talked about before, which is the permitting, financing, talking to the town boards, looking to wetlands delineation, trying to close on the financing, finding a construction partner for the project, and all these things take time to do. And just briefly, the big thing that we mentioned as well is the incentives are very important, federal incentives and then strong state level incentives, but also it has to be in a state where you get a lot of sunlight, there's high potential electricity costs, utility scale program, obviously being a utility scale project is great. If there's a community solar program that that state has, then that helps as well. If companies have 100% renewable energy goals and say, like there's a data center and they want offsite power. That's obviously an ideal location for a utility scale project. As I mentioned before, like the first step is really negotiating with the property owner or landowner to establish a lease or purchase agreement. And then basically there's a lot of due diligence that's taken over to go into more detail. It's working diligently to receive approval for environmental screenings and obtaining the state and federal regulatory approval, local zoning, jurisdiction approval and approval from the local utility to connect the solar farm to the grid. There also is the determination from the utility 
what sort of the high level, they'll do an interconnection study to basically provide high level cost of what the interconnection cost would be, which is a huge part of the cost of the project. Also, there are taxes related to if you put a solar project. So it's called pilot or property in lieu of taxes. So usually that's dependent on the municipality or township where the project is. The landowner wouldn't be subject to that tax. Basically, the owner of the property would be as well. The other big question that we get all the time is decommissioning. So of the solar project, so technically the life of the solar project will be between 20 to 30 years. And within the lease agreement, there's usually a decommissioning sort of agreement in the lease agreement. And it's the responsibility of the tenant or the owner to remove any and all infrastructure associated with the solar farm. The other big thing too is, you know, brownfield and landfills have become very popular for utility scale solar projects because you transform contaminated landfills and brownfields into solar farms to benefit the environment and obviously generate revenue for the owner of that land. And that's the high level description of, we don't want to get into too much detail, but we just wanted to get a high level of why landowners should look into solar. So Suzanne, this is a great episode. I think the listeners got a lot of valuable feedback. Can you tell everyone what's the best way to reach us? And then also to end it with your hashtag as well. Sure. So yeah, if anybody out there is a landowner that thinks they might have a property that would be a good qualifier for this or anybody else that's looking to develop a project like this, you can reach out to me directly. My email is Suzanne at RenewEnergy.com, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E at RenewEnergy, R-E-N-E-U energy.com. We also have our main page info at renewenergy.com. And I always like to end my podcast with hashtag Carpe Solum. It means seize the sun, everybody. Great. Thank you, Suzanne, for another great episode. I appreciate it. I'm always happy to participate in the Solar Maverick podcast. So thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 